Hey everyone, welcome back to Illuminate, a podcast series from Hope Fellowship Church where we share stories to inspire growth and encourage engagement in our community. I'm Hannah Bowen, the Worship Arts Coordinator, and if you're new to the podcast or maybe just joining us for the first time in a while, would definitely encourage you to go back and check out the first part of this conversation Nathan and I are having with Reverend Dr. Beer, aka Nathan's dad. Uh, It's been encouraging, challenging, and informative, so we hope you enjoy the second part to this conversation on what to do when things don't go our way. I think there's some real stressors in life that break open the peace and contentment and it all spills out. Like uh, money is a really big stressor that we're dealing with all the time. I don't know when we're not going to deal with money. Um, Todd Beening, a good friend of mine in Michigan, had a pretty good idea about uh, money anxiety because they were missionaries and they were on faith support. So sometimes money didn't come in very well. And his wife was the money keeper. He was the he had more of a uh, just maybe I don't want to call uh, not caring, but he just decided that money wasn't going to control him. But his wife paid the bills. So one day she came to him and said, "Oh my goodness, we have a two hundred fifty dollar electric bill this month. How are we going to pay for it?" And he said, "Well, remember this same month last year we had a two hundred fifty dollar bill, and that was last year, and we're still here." We'll figure it out. And they did. <laughs> I mean, money problems are never going to go away. And their coping mechanism was God will provide. There'll be a, I mean, they, they didn't spend terribly. They, they were frugal. They, you know, um, they saved money. And sure enough, God provided again. Um, another good friend of mine, Rich, Rich Fifield, uh, We've been friends since we were 18 years old. He's another pastor friend. And he, when it comes to money, he's really good. He understands money. And, uh, you know, my conversations with him are always, you know, there's always something i got to deal with. And his number one answer is about money, you know, Tom, it's only money. Meaning, that's not the source of your pleasure. That's not your security. That's not your, that's not your peace and happiness. You're, it's only money. So money will come and money will go, but where is that source of contentment and peace? And that's and money is often going to show us where that is. So if I have a really big, solid bank account, I'm feeling pretty secure, then that can really steal from my source of peace and contentment in God alone. Maybe it's time to give some of that away. I think that's the, that's the beautiful part of the Christian life. Like, the baseline is peace, but specifically peace in Christ, and I think yeah. that's the big thing because I th- I think for us you sometimes and I've I know all of us probably on this conversation and whoever's listening has probably felt times peace, and then all of a sudden you realize that you felt peace in the fact that you had a, enough money in your savings account, but then that money goes away and your peace is is almost taken away, um, and, and then you start to realize that your peace wasn't ever actually peace. I don't really know what it would be called a false sense of security almost. Um, it was an idol. <laughs> an idol, yeah. It was your peace. Your peace was actually an idol. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like uh, we put our peace in so many different things, um, and, and when that, when it, when all of a sudden we start to feel uh, frustrated, I think, I think the Christian maturing or this idea of sanctification is, is 
not even just having more peace, but putting our peace in, in Christ more. Because I think uh, the, our, Christ, our our life in general, we're going to always put our peace in other things. It, it's like what you're saying. There's always going to be highs and lows. It's going to be impossible at times not to be anxious about money, even though maybe the past 10 times I had really bad money issues. Uh, I was completely fine and, and was trusting God. But this time, I, I, you know, this time I'm just more anxious for some reason or, or in any situation in life. Right. We're, we're going to find ourselves back to being anxious. And I think our growth, though, comes when. Our baseline is peace in Christ, not peace in money or peace in, you know, my wife's and my relationship is going well or my spouse's and my relationship is going well or my grades are, are, are good right now. Um, and so I have peace or, or any of that because um, I think um, – I don't know. I just – I think that's such a a really good point to make in that it's not just peace in general. It's a specific kind of peace. Um, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's this peace of Christ that no matter what's happening around me, no matter even what's happening in me, uh, God is still God and God is still for God. And because of that, he's still for me. Well, I also, if I can just bounce in here and say, tie in that sense that, that my peace is in Christ with that money peace. It was um, not once, but twice. Ron and I went through Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey's classic course in how to understand money and we finally after the second time it was actually the fourth time we've gone through money classes in our church and it was that second time through there we realized oh my word this system is amazing we can do it and then i read a book by robert kiyosaki called rich dad poor dad which explained how money works in economics very simply and that's when we began to realize that money is just money, but you still need to understand how it works in the world, not just think of it as a, an idol or a controlling agent or a happy agent. It's just money. It's a tool. It's like a hammer. It's like you know, a stapler. It staples papers, papers together. Money does things to, you know. So Rhonda and I have set our goal up that we want to be able to give generously in retirement. We want to do mission work. Um, you know, when I retire from school, that's part of our COVID mechanism. I don't want to sit around in front of a TV set or play golf all day long. I want to make sure that I'm living for Christ and that I'm able to give generously even all the way through retirement. So I didn't have that as a goal until I recognized that money is just a tool that God gives us to further the kingdom. And, you know, um, it's otherwise it becomes a really big source of irritation and depression and conflict and anxiety. So we, we went out and got educated uh, because we needed it. And I think that was, God opened up a couple doors for us to do that. So it's not just the peace of Christ in a ethereal way, but the peace of Christ in a material way that comes into our lives like that. Real options show up. Now that we've talked about money as a source of stress and conflict. What are some other sources of stress and conflict that you've noticed in people's lives that are just kind of common pitfalls throughout all people? Well, pretty generalized question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just about anything can stress people out. Mowing the lawn can stress people out or, uh, <laughs> you know, the idea that life comes at you, that's a phrase that people use, life comes at you, life is difficult. That was the um, 
opening phrase of the best-selling book for 25 years on New York Times best-selling uh, bestsellers list. Um, Scott Peck's book. Shoot, I can't even think of the name of the book right now. Um, it's been so long since I read it, but uh, life is difficult, and you can't get around it, and you can't find ways out of it. And I think that's what people have to realize is that all of life, especially when it's good life, has a price to pay, which is time, money, work, energy, thoughtfulness, trying to be good. Being good is very difficult in our day and age or any day and age. Our humanity wants to get in the way. Anyway, stress comes at a lot of different places. But um, I would say one of the biggest places of stress would be relationships with other people and uh when you have difficult relationships, you may have uh, similar patterns in the way you deal with them. Often people do harsh startups when they have a difficult relationship and that makes it even worse. They get into a relationship with something that causes more conflict, more stress. Um, I know in, in my life there have been people who have caused tremendous conflict and it's very hard to deal with. And it's something I would rather just move on and not have to deal with it. It's called cutting off. And that, and that does work in some cases. You just have to. It doesn't really stop the stress. You, every time that person or that situation comes up, you have stress that's residual inside of your brain, and it fires off all those neurons, so you have stress hormones. And over time, it may diminish, but you have to really work at not letting that take over your life. So uh, a couple of things that I do with these relationships, uh, you have to realize anxiety is or stress is inherent in every relationship and every family and every organization. So with those relationships, that anxiety has to be understood. So what do we mean by anxiety? It just means the fear that something will not turn out to your best interest. So anxiety often comes about because you're being threatened or you feel threatened, whether it's true or not. Today, we have to add that whole sense of being offended. People are offended very easily because they don't find other people agreeing with their belief system, their politics, their way they dress or the way they think, the way they have organized their room, their car, whatever it is. People can be offended by just about anything. So threats to our future are usually where anxiety comes about. Uh, threats to our humanity, our life, our health, those are all threats. So what do, you, what do you do with that anxiety or that threat? And a couple of ways. Um, this is from uh, family systems theory, which is a counseling theory. Number one, we deal with it by acting out. We do things that are not really in our best interest. Like uh, some people during the pandemic acted out their stress of being at home or in those, these relationships by drinking a lot more. Alcohol sales went up almost uh, two and a half times normal, which is not a good way to deal with stress. Coping mechanisms with alcohol are simply uh, put aside. They're postponed. You don't really deal with the situation. Your brain goes dead for a little bit, but the situation never changes. So you may feel a little bit more calm or uh, unaware of what really is causing the stress by having some alcohol to dull the sensations. You're not really dealing with anxiety. So we acting out can happen sexually. Affairs are often the result of anxiety in relationships. Uh, so they, a person just decides to go ballistic and, and maybe not even decide. They fall into a 
temptation and they, uh, they continue to move on that temptation till it falls into sexual sin. Uh, flirtatiousness is one of those ways people deal with it. Um, a marriage that has stress in it, they'll often be flirtatious with other people, which causes, of course, more problems because people find flirtatiousness attractive for a minute. Uh, then they realize what's happening. They realize this guy or this woman is really creepy or, or even worse, people act on it and follow through with sexual behavior. Uh, so acting out uh, could be stomping on the accelerator and trying to spin your tires because you have anxiety in your relationships. Um, could be breaking something, throwing something, slamming doors, uh, any way to show the other person that you've been threatened and you decide to act out. Uh, yelling and screaming, calling names, those are all acting out behaviors for anxiety in relationships. Um, but there's another way we try to mediate that anxiety in relationships by talking about the other person to other people. So the second thing is it's called triangulation. That other person is not there in the room, but you talk as if that person is there so the other person can get a picture of what you're saying about that person. So often if we have conflict with somebody, we go to somebody else and talk how badly that person is and bring up the, con the conflicted person and try to paint a picture of that person negatively so we deal with it with a third party as if it was being dealt with with the original party which doesn't deaden the anxiety whatsoever. In fact, it heightens the anxiety. And the third person then can make decisions about you and the other person while you're talking. They feel anxiety. They may, they may decide to dislike the other person or dislike you in the middle of that. So it really doesn't work to uh, act out or to triangulate. And of course, we use that word gossip scripturally because it's wrong. It's sin. But here we have the word in counseling as triangulation, which which is what gossip is. Now, gossip sometimes is helpful. Uh, this passing of information from one person to another, uh, you know, if somebody is uh, spreading a disease, you don't want to go near that person if they're, you know, or their business is like full of cockroaches and you find out they have cockroaches. That might be helpful information, maybe not be gossip, but gossip really... Uh, in the in the form of trying to mediate anxiety is not helpful. It's negative. It's trying to break down the other person into small little packages so they can be destroyed eventually by the number of packages that are negative that you've talked about. So triangulation is not helpful. Um, the third type of way we deal with anxiety in relationships would be um, cutting that person out of our lives. Separation. Now, as far as parents go, it's really important to be separate from your parents. Otherwise, the parent uh, does not allow um, the kinds of growth for maturity and responsibility into adulthood. So there is a uh, separation that is good between adult children and their parents. In fact, one of the um, definitions of juvenile or adolescence is that you still get some kind of benefit financially or materially from your parents. It's a very simple, simplistic way of this defining it, but um, you perpetuate irresponsible or immaturity by not separating from your parents. But separation from other people is often how we deal with anxiety in relationships, cutting them off, uh, 
fact, slamming a door might be one of those ways. Just slamming the door and walking in the other room and I don't want to have anything to do with you. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve the anxiety. The anxiety is still inside of you. But, it, you know, you feel better maybe because you slam the door for, a, you know, a millisecond. That's about it. Then, uh, then you got to deal with the whole person again. And it hasn't solved anything. So, it's, yeah, a lot of stress in relationships that we deal with improperly. I think that's absolutely true just like in my own personal experience of the biggest stressor in my life being that of relationships, whether that is just a friendship, whether that's with Cassie, my wife. Um, I feel like that's just always the, the top stressor. I also feel like just to kind of touch on a, a quick point that you made is it almost feels like we ignore these long-term stressors by doing short-term uh coping mechanisms or a short term, like just mm -hmm. getting a short term satisfaction. Like when you were talking about alcohol or even like a fair, uh, it's just something to distract us from the problem, not really get to the root of the issue. Um, right. And I feel like just all of those ways that you were talking about how we deal with stress, specifically with relationships, I think are ways that we can pinpoint how we've been dealing with COVID a lot of times, not necessarily, I mean, with alcohol use, alcohol prices, but just with this gossip, I mean, you've seen just, I feel like conversations, you start to just talk about things that you wouldn't necessarily talk about because you're bored and you're lonely. So you just need to talk about people or, or, or things. But I think when we look at the biblical mandate for our lives as Christians, it's that we're supposed to find ourselves in a community of believers um, and we really see throughout scripture that we were really created for community. So why, in your opinion, is something that we are created for, why would that also be one of the biggest stressors in our lives? Well, I, that's a great question because, as you know, in marriage, God created marriage so that the two should become one flesh. But very difficult to become united in one mind, one heart, one body, one soul, and spirit because of that crustiness of our sinful self. So in marriage, we have the legal and the formal recognition of the one flesh to constantly be working at not becoming a better person or not trying to become uh, uh, more loving to each other, but the real essence of marriage is that there is something between the two people that they enter into that is the one flesh. It's like the two people have to walk into this thing called marriage. It's almost like it's a whole, it's another body, it's another, another venue that you're always trying to make better. You're trying to make the marriage better. You're trying to be, make that oneness better. And that, that's what makes a good marriage. That's what Gottman has said too, that in between the two people, there is something that you call marriage. And the way I often say that is like, um, my wife's name is Rhonda. Your mom's name is Rhonda. And so, you know, I'm Tom, she's Rhonda. But then there's a Tom and Rhonda. That when people hear about Tom and Rhonda, there's a sense that we are one. We're married. We're together. We're united. We're one family. So this Tom and Rhonda thing, after 35 years of working on it, has some rough edges still. And we have to really work at going into that, okay, we're doing it for the the sake of our marriage. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense because you should be in love and romance and you should be lovey-dovey and all huggy bear, kissy bear all the time. <laughs> and that doesn't feel right to say, well, 
I'm going to come back into the room after slamming the door because <laughs> I'm doing it for the marriage. But that's how successful marriages become one flesh. One flesh is a spiritual entity that you can't get physically. It's something that happens spiritually. And I believe the church has really missed the mark for centuries, for all time, on that. Because, you know, there's not a single prayer for marriage in any of the, the prayer books, in any of the churches, the Catholic Church, Episcopal, or uh, even the, the spiritual, uh, charismatic prayer books that often are, are published um, by individuals, there's not a single prayer for marriage. I mean, really? Or for sex? Or for getting together after you have a fight? There's not a single prayer about that. That's ridiculous. This, it's the most powerful spiritual entity in all of creation, this one flesh thing, and we don't pray for it. It's like we've missed the mark. And relationships are designed by God now to to grow us. I mean, marriage is that relationship that gets those rough edges identified. We find out what our faults are. We find out what our, our biggest um, roadblocks are to personal growth. And by God's grace, with the other person showing us forgiveness and grace, we experience some way to modulate those quirks. And we do it not because I want to be a better person. I do it because I want the marriage to work, that one flesh to be there. And in the process of doing that, I do become a better person. So, And I think a lot of people in the world are saying, I don't want to get married because it, you know, so many people fail. What they're really saying is, I don't want to work. I don't want to have to go into this place where I don't get all my needs met. And I, I, so, and I have to work on this other thing. It's a very selfish way of looking at relationships when you say, I'll just live with this other person. And as long as they meet my needs, then we'll stay together. And I can't imagine how much insecurity that breeds, not only in the, the couple, but also in the children and all the other people around them. Because how long is this thing going to last? We don't know. I mean, that's true for any marriage, but when people are really trying to work at the marriage, that thing between the two of them, it becomes very obvious that people are working at it and they're trying to make it better so they can have that one flesh experience more and more often. Yeah, I think uh, I think just when you've been talking about that, I've been thinking, I'm, I'm trying to look up what specific passage it is of where Paul compares the union of a husband and wife to that of the church and Christ and yeah, how Jesus much chapter five, yeah. Oh yeah, twenty, tw- yeah, something Jesus in the twenties. Yeah. So just how powerful that is. Just taking it outside of a man and wife marriage for a second, and taking it into us having this relationship, one with Christ, but also as us all being combined together as this big church, the big C church of where we're one body of believers being joined in unity to Christ. How much more? How much more powerful what, with what you just said, understanding what you just said, and taking all that you said into this idea of our union with Christ? Um, I think because I, I think I want to talk of, and it, and if you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but just taking it into this context of us with other believers and even us with Christ, uh, like just hearing all these things that you are saying, like it's not always going to be lovey-dovey. We're working to become Nathan and Jesus, right? It sounds kind of weird, I guess. Yeah. But but how would you say that affects, uh, I guess, one, our relationship with other believers in that we are all 
the church and we're all working towards this union with Christ, but then also how does that affect our relationship with Christ? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a question that's more of a pastor's standpoint that you'd be responding from or a counselor's standpoint. Well, I, I know I know what you're saying is that here you are in a marriage trying to do this. Well, how do you do it in a church where right. people only see each other sometimes for a few minutes out in the lobby area or out in the parking lot or uh, an hour or two in a community group setting where they, they learn how to live with each other in a community group for a year or two or three as long as they can stand each other? And the point isn't, can you stand each other? The point is, can you work at becoming the friends that God wanted us to be? Like Jesus said, I know, uh, you know, you're my friends, but you're really my brothers. So we're friends, but we really turn out to be these diehard individuals for each other, to stand up for each other and to be there for each other. And how do you do that in a church when we see marriages having a hard time doing that? Well, there's a couple things that I know really help marriage that really help people in a church for one thing is time spent together so the most precious commodity that we can never get more of i mean you can't create more time you can't create more minutes or hours in a day we often frittle away in frivolous activities that have no meaning whatsoever to our relationships i mean television is the greatest curse on marriages and people have brought television into their bedrooms. They wonder why they don't have good sex. Well, it's because your every moment is tied up with having some entertainment that's outside of yourselves, and people haven't learned how to turn it off and just look at each other. I'll tell you what, Nathan, one of the hardest things to get couples to do in marriage counseling is to spend two hours together, no other distractions, face-to-face. So can you imagine people in the church spending two hours together, like let's say you go out on a retreat and there's a really good speaker. It's a men's retreat. Instead of going out and playing softball or you know, going off in the afternoon for a hike together, spend two hours face-to-face with another brother and listen to the person's story and hear what's going on in their life and just listen. No commentary, no, hey, I have the same problem in my life. But that would cause tremendous growth in the body of Christ if we were just to spend two hours face-to-face with another brother, um, for me, or sister for another female. I believe that same-sex relationship is where you do that. It's very, very, very difficult to do that with somebody else who have a different sex. But uh, I'm just saying, two hours together in a marriage? Come on. If you want your marriage to grow, that's what you do. Two hours Every week, minimum, face-to-face, talking. No interruptions, no other TV in the background, no restaurants. Um, it's, it is mind-blowing how many people do not do that. So why not do that in the church? I mean, that's one thing I, that I would say. Time is really good. Um, time is essential. You've got to have time together. And so, you know, Sunday morning's really important. But pull somebody aside and say, hey, can I have 10 minutes with you? You know, I just want to hear how you're doing. That would blow people away if more people would do that out in the lobby of the church in between church service. I just want to hear how you're doing. And they go, I'm doing fine. I'd say, what, what's going on at work? Just probe a little bit. And if the person says, I don't, I feel uncomfortable with this because I don't know you. Well, you know, do it to people that are, ask people that over time more, uh, you know, as you know people in the church rather than the first person you meet in the lobby. Um, you know, who's, who's just coming to church, but there, that's, 
spending time with people is the most important thing. I'll tell you what the other thing is. Um, the, the triangulation kills marriages and kills churches. You know, so that, that's really important to understand. If you're going outside of your marriage and talking about your wife or your husband, then it's killing your marriage because you're actually, in your mind, reinforcing the negative stereotype of your spouse. And the same thing happens when you badmouth your pastor or other people in the church. It reinforces the negative stereotype. And then in your mind, you kind of excuse working on that area because the other person is so much at fault. So, you know, stop talking about your spouse. Yeah, you know, I remember in the old days when, and I still hear it occasionally, but not as often as, that's my old lady. Yeah, I got to go out with my old lady. Like, oh my word, that's horrible. Or, um, I've heard people just say horrible name calling, uh, names called their spouse. And that happens in the church. You call people names. I won't go into the details of those, but just that's called, you know, gossip triangulation. You're trying to do something that makes the other person look bad. Okay. So that's one, two, two areas of time and triangulation. Um, I think the, another one is showing uh, criticism. There, criticism is different than a complaint. Um, so in marriage, if you criticize, you would say something like this. You always leave your socks on the floor. Or you always leave the, you know, the coffee maker dirty. Or you never, you never clean the dishes. That is not helpful in the body of Christ either, to say, the pastor never visits me. Well, no, he didn't visit you when you were in the hospital for knee surgery because it was only a three-hour surgery and you were in there and then you came back. That, that's a little different. Did your community group members visit you? Did your family visit you? That, you were probably taken care of. He probably was praying for you. Um, maybe even gave you a call the day before, day after, or you know, maybe that's not really the pastor's job. But um, to say you never visits the person may not be true. Uh, maybe better to say, I wish you had visited me in the hospital when I had my knee surgery. I really needed that. That is legitimate. That's a complaint. Or, hey, I noticed yesterday that you didn't clean out the coffee maker. Would you please clean it out next time you do it? That's perfectly fine. That's a good way to handle a relationship. Uh, and in church, we often do it the other way around. They never sing the hymn. They never sing the songs I like. That musician up there, they always shake their, their chin the wrong way, you know, or what, you know, name it. The criticism can really be, be a, a destroyer of the relationships in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I really love, um, I'd never heard a, a word put to the term triangulation before. Like mm -hmm. the concept is very present in my mind. That was something like my husband and I, agreed on early on was like um if we're having issues um and we need to talk about it with someone else um one to not do that with a person of the opposite sex mm -hmm. so like i would never come to hope and tell nathan about an argument austin i've had because yeah. that just like i just as as wise as i find your counsel like i don't like i would that shut would, you down before yeah, you even like started. that would said, be no, no, like no. <laughs> a breach of like my relationship with him but like even to female friends of mine there's really only one female friend i have who i would 
bring any struggles with too because I've set the boundary with her of like I'm not doing this so that I can rat out on Austin I feel comfortable talking to her because she's going to say Hannah you're perceiving this situation wrong and take Austin's side and help me see his perspective because she knows and loves both of us um really well and so like just how important it is to have those boundaries because I I feel like I've seen time and time again with friends of mine um like you put those reinforcement that reinforcing of a negative version of the other person especially when you aren't having that one-on-one time together to build up a more accurate model of how that person actually is and you're creating a different version of them even like a relationship with god the reason we're supposed to spend time with god daily and read his word is so that we don't create our own version of god but have the 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 truth of who he is yeah yeah he can he can work on our he can work on that image the image we have of god when we actually in his word you're right but not when we're just talking about him to other people or yeah triangulating whatever you want to call it everyone for joining us for this second part of our conversation with Reverend Dr. Beer. I know we've been really enjoying some of these challenging topics and appreciate you guys coming along for the journey. Before you go, don't forget that you can send us an email to either hannah at hopeandanderson.com or nathan at hopeandanderson.com letting us know any questions or topic suggestions, stories, or feedback you may have to share. We'd love to hear from you. See you guys next week.